0: Well, hello, everyone. Happy birthday, Christ Chapel. 40 years, that's incredible. 40 years of God's faithfulness at work in and through this community. Congratulations. It's good to join you and to continue in this series on God's unstoppable work in the world. God's at work. He will not be stopped. And he works through his choice movement. That's you and I, the church What a privilege that is to be a part of the body of Christ, and he still wants to work through us for another 40 years, no matter what 2020 and and 2021 might throw at us. Uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, God created a new humanity, a group of people from amongst humanity, the church. He adopted us as his children so that we would grow up to know him with him. So we would represent him in the world with him. So that we would await his return in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we would one day receive an eternal inheritance with him that's being prepared for us to this very day. That's remarkable. That's worth celebrating. We're 40 years part of a 2,000 year movement. You're part of that. I'm part of that. God is doing a work these days that no man can stop. Today, I want to talk to you about the movement's maturity. The movement's maturity. This is very important to God. It is God's will, like like that of any father, that that his children grow up, that his children mature. That's that's my will for my four kids. I want them to grow up to become the the man and the woman that God designed them to be that they would flourish, that they would ripen, that they would blossom, that they would mature. The Apostle Paul refers to this in Colossians 1.28 as to become fully mature in Jesus Christ. Fully mature in Jesus Christ. It's very important to God. What does that involve? How do we mature in Christ? How does the movement that is the church grow up? by God's design, his way, as a community. Well, there's no surprises for you, I hope, this morning. It's, it's back to basics. It's back to basics. And so let me walk you through a couple of things that pop up, uh, launched from Acts 15, a very important chapter in the book of Acts. But one key way in which God matures us, and it is his work, is by feeding us his word. The Spirit of God wants to spoon-feed us His Word. It's a crucial practice of the church historically. The church grows in health rooted in God's Word. The movement matures, develops, grows up to become all that God wants that movement to become in this generation when we're firmly planted in the Word of God, when we are allowing the Spirit of God to spoon-feed us that which brings life to our community, to us as individuals. This is why Christ Chapel for 40 years has been called a Bible church. The Bible is is, is a core value of a community of believers like this one. But but it's not just a 40-year-old core value. It's been a core value of the church for those 2,000 years. Look at Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42 is a very important verse in the book of Acts. It's one of several summary verses that give us a little window into the practices of the early church. What did they do? How did they gather? Look at it with me. And they, that is the church, devoted themselves that little word there, devoted, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, underline that. It, it, it's quite a strong word. It means they were constant in. They were steadfastly persistent in. They were doggedly attentive to, well, to what? To the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. They were in the Word of God. They were spoon-fed the Word of God by the Spirit through his shepherd leaders so that they would grow up, so that they would mature. They were not devoted to the teaching of any Tom, Dick, and Harry who blogged something somewhere about their feelings about Jesus when they look at the sunrise or when they have ice cream or when they sit on a latte. There's nothing wrong with that, but that wasn't their staple diet. Their staple diet was to sit in the Word of God. Subject to those whom God had had gifted for the very task of feeding the flock. As Jesus repeatedly exhorted Peter when he met him by that that sea so many years ago. It's, It's a crucial and historic practice of God's people by God's design to gather in fellowship around God's word. That's why we meet in formats like this. That's why there's this section inserted into the order of service when we meet in formats like this. It's the Apostle Paul who, who wrote to young pastor Timothy in Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, and he said, devote yourself to the public reading of Scriptures, to teaching and to exhortation. What did he mean by that? He meant open up God's Word to God's people, feed them God's truth if you want them to grow up if you want them to mature it's why the author of hebrews in chapter 10 also says do not neglect public gathering as some are in the habit of doing we need to meet together and we need to meet together to worship god as a community and to feast on his word it's crucial that we do that uh, Pastor Cody last week mentioned from Acts 6 a very important point, which is that we're all servant leaders, and we are. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has been called by Jesus Christ to serve him by exerting influence in whoever happens to be around them for Christ's sake. But that doesn't mean that we're all shepherd leaders. God, in His distribution of gifts to the body of the church, has apportioned several spiritual gifts in different directions. One of them is calling shepherd leaders to lead the flock. They were devoted, Acts 2.42 tells us, doggedly attentive to the apostles' teaching. The teaching of the Scriptures uh, through distributed through those whom God had called. God's Word will mature you in your sermon notes if you can access them or if you can click a link somewhere and and, and access them. You'll see a little sort of line that, that lays out a few of the issues that God's Word will do for you. It's not an exhaustive list. There's a few things there. The first thing I've listed there is that God's Word will nourish you. It's Jesus in Matthew 4 that says that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We have a copy of that. God's Word is going to be your spiritual sustenance if you want to grow in Christ. God's Word can also guide you. Psalm 119 tells us that God's Word is like a lamp to our feet to light the way. It's a very, very dark world before we invented electricity. When it went dark at night, it was dark. And if you had a little light, where were you going to put it if you're wanting to walk out to the backyard? You're going to put it by your feet. I need to see what's there. God's Word will guide you. God's Word equips you. Very, very well-known passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 where we're told by Paul that God's Word is God-breathed. It's the very breath of God. It's, it's inspired by God. That means that, that, that it's without error. That means that it is the final authority on everything that pertains to life and faith. That means that it is sufficient. God's Word is sufficient. Everything that you and I need to know about life in a chaotic world, in the company of God, has been revealed by God to us. That doesn't mean that it contains everything there is to know. There's lots of stuff we don't know, but everything that is sufficient for a walk in faith with God has been revealed to us. In that passage of Scripture, Paul goes on to say that it's useful for teaching and for rebuking and for correcting And for training in righteousness. We love the teaching bit. We love the training in righteousness but We don't like the rebuking and we don't like the correcting bits. But it's it's for all those purposes that we may be thoroughly equipped. That's the purpose. God's word will equip you to to be able to to live for him. God's word sets us apart. Jesus in John 17, which is his priestly prayer uh, for us. He says that God's word and God's truth sets us apart. It sets us apart from what well, from, from all the falsehood that's out there in society. It sets us apart. Your word is truth, Jesus says. God's word also guards us. When Paul lays out in Ephesians 6 the the full armor of God so that we're able to stand firm in the assaults of society that are essentially the assaults of Satan, there's only one item in that armory that is an offensive weapon, and it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Do you know the Word of God? If you know the Word of God, you can stand firm you can be guarded. Psalm 1 tells us that those who meditate on the Word of God are like a tree that's put exactly where trees want to live, by streams of water, so that in time it will produce fruit. 1 Peter 2 tells us that you are to crave the Word of God. You know like what? Like a little baby shouts its head off when it's hungry and it wants its mummy's milk. Do you crave the word of God that you are unapologetic in making sure that you get it? Jesus in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that we are to build our life upon the word of God if we're going to withstand any storm that life throws our way. Friends, a crucial and a historic practice of the church has been to root themselves in God's Word, to pull up the chair and let the Holy Spirit spoon-feed us. We cannot mature, we cannot grow for the next 40 years without this as our core value. You are what you eat. Eat this. Let, Let this Nourish, develop, birth desires in you that are godly. So I have a question for you. Are you really, are you really in God's Word? Do you have a reading plan? Do you have a study plan? Do you set time aside to to, to spend time listening to what the Holy Spirit would have you hear this day and the next day? I love that, that in social media, people can post little verses here and there that, that are true. My, my fear sometimes is that they strip them from their context and that believers think that that was their feasting on God's Word that day. We need more. Sad fact is that we are already believed to be the least biblically literate, generation of that 2,000-year movement. Did you know that? And yet, no generation before us has had more access to the Word of God, literally, at our fingertips. And you can pick your language. The statistics are are so staggering that that I'm not going to embarrass us by rehearsing them before you Google it yourself, some of these surveys which are reputable are public domain. Staggering. I need to behave myself. I'm going a little bit hard on us all here. Let's, let's transition. Here's, here's why it's important that we mature in God's Word. It, you're you're going to grow, and that's important. But there's another reason as well. And the other reason relates to our role in society in light of a constant problem that the 2,000-plus-year movement has faced at every turn. And, it, and it's this, that the church faces attacks on truth at every turn. The church faces attacks on truth at every turn. This is an ancient problem. This is a problem as ancient as life on planet Earth. From the very first moment that that Adam and Eve encountered that sneaky serpent in Genesis 3 in the garden, that sneaky serpent has been attacking God's truth. That first temptation is, is, is cast humanity's way under the question did God really say? did God really say that? It's an attack on truth from the very, very, very beginning. And the New Testament Scriptures are filled with uh, writers like Paul, like Peter, trying to deal with the encroachment of falsehood into the movement. The letter of Galatians is, is one big, I need to fix an attack on the gospel letter massive portions of the Corinthian correspondence, and of First and 2 Timothy and Titus, and the, the Petrine Epistles, 1 and 2 Peter. Paul even tells us in 2 Timothy 4 that there is going to come a day when people are not going to want to hear from the pulpits anything other than what tickles their ears and endorses their desired practices. If it doesn't suit us, don't preach that. Just preach what we want to practice. Paul warns about that 2,000 years ago, and sometimes I wonder if we're getting close. The attack on truth is brutal, but it's not new. The angle of attack is very, very new. That ancient, sneaky, shrewd serpent in the last 30 years has, has spun his attack toward the movement through what he's doing with truth. He's essentially convinced Western society that truth is nothing to do with facts and evidence. Truth is everything to do with what I want truth to be. Now, this isn't me making this up. Study this for yourself. If you want to study a little bit about postmodernism, which is the age in which we live, one of its core values is Build your own truth and let me build my own truth, and we'll have a happier, more peaceful world if we do that. Let's release ourselves from the shackles of absolute truth. It's just wearing and boring and restrictive to our advancement as human beings. In 2016, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. It's it's a phrase that captures where Western civilization has headed toward, living in a society where we're past truth, where you get to build your own and I get to build my own. Essentially, it comes down to whatever you want it to be, it can be that, and it's everywhere. There's perhaps no other generation in the history of the 2,000-year movement that has needed to be more anchored in the Word of God because of this post-truth assault. We're getting some work done in our home, and it's in the master bathroom. And so the master bathroom and the master bedroom are off-limits. It's just dangerous because everything's been sort of stripped back and it's very dusty, concrete dust. And so the kids are under strict instructions that they're not allowed to go in there. And one of the practical issues is if they go in there, they trail all the dirt out into our nice dark wooden floor and on into the kitchen. Well, the other day I was at home and I was walking past uh, the bedroom and I saw perfect five-toed four-year-old sized bare feet from the master bedroom all the way through to the kitchen. And so I, I called the four-year-old up and I said, hey, do you want to come with me here and, and have a look at this? And, and he did. And, and so he stared at these footprints and I asked them, whose are those? And it's, it's just beautiful to watch. I wish I had had a video. He, he kind of looked at them, did this, looked at his foot. The dog walked past, and he said, Barnabas, that's the dog's name. And I okay, look again. You know, five perfect toes, count them and this size of a barefoot. So he looked at them again. I could see his little brain working. He then looked up at me and he said passionately that they weren't his because I don't want them to be mine. (laughs) That's classic post-truth. It doesn't matter what the evidence says. In fact, he and I were the only two human beings with five toes in the house at the time. You see, he doesn't want it to be truth. Truth is what I want it to be. That's classic post-truth, and it's excusable in a four-year-old, the same four-year-old who chooses also to believe that he's Kung Fu Panda most of the day. That's who he identifies with these days because he watches it on the TV. I'm Kung Fu Panda. It's excusable in a four-year-old. It's not excusable in an adult society, and it's not excusable in the movement that is the church. You know, one of our roles in society as the movement, according to Paul in First Timothy 3.15, is to be a pillar and a buttress of truth. How else will the world know truth if God's people don't project truth, stand on truth, declare truth? That's one of our roles in society. And I, I don't want the 21st century Christian group, which is what we're a part of, to be blushing in embarrassment before the Lord when all the other centuries of God's people stand before Him in the days to come. Like, Sorry, yeah, we really didn't do that. Now, how can we do that if we don't stand firmly rooted in the Word of God, if we believe that we get to update God's truth, usually to suit society's assaults. Look at Acts 15 verse 1. We're finally in Acts 15. Very key chapter in in the book of Acts and a very key chapter in the history of the church. I, I want you to see that this has been a problem from the very beginning of the church. Look at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is an attack from within the church on the gospel. What is the gospel? Does a non-Jew, that is a Gentile, who becomes a believer in Jesus Christ have to live like a Jew in order to be a full Christian? You see, these people had chapter and verse for that kind of teaching from the Old Testament. They hadn't understood it in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it was an assault on truth nonetheless. How did they deal with it? How did the early church deal with it? It's crucial that we're rooted in the Word of God. It is a constant challenge on the church to pursue falsehood, not truth. But what process can we follow in order to make sure that we guard the truth? And that's all I want you to see in chapter 15 today. There's a proper process that we have to follow. It's a God-designed process. It's His process. And it's this, that the church guards the truth via God's chosen order, led by God's shepherd leaders. We guard the truth according to God's process, God's order, and that order includes a system inside of the governance of his local church that heeds, submits to the shepherd leaders whom he has gifted for that very purpose. I know what you're thinking. If you're looking at your sermon notes, you're thinking, boy, we have a whole bunch of text to get through, and, and we're running out of time. I know who uh, gets nervous in these situations. I'm going to try and hop, skip, and jump over chapter 15 because I'm not going to exposit the chapter before you. I just want you to see the process that they followed because that process is what the church historically has followed in order to deal with assaults on truth from within or from society. Basically, we don't want Tom, Dick, and Harry calling the shots with their lice blogs. And I'm not picking on Tom, Dick, and Harry. I don't know Tom, Dick, and Harry. (laughs) And if you're called Tom, Dick, or Harry, I apologize for the abuse that you're going to get at lunch today. (laughs) Look at verses one to five. There, the Luke, Dr. Luke lays out for us step one in this process, which is the problem is identified. The problem is identified. The, the truth attack is identified. I read to you verse one a few moments ago. Let me read a little portion of it that again. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's repeated again in verse 5 in a different way. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them, that's the Gentiles, to keep the law of Moses. A little group inside of the church is not happy with the gospel that's being proclaimed, and so they begin to teach an alternate gospel. Well, this doesn't sit well with who? With those who know the gospel those who are firmly rooted in the Word of God. You can't detect falsehood unless you're sure of truth. So Paul and Barnabas detect it. Look at step two, verses 6 to 21. The shepherd leaders, they discuss, they decide on the matter, and they do so based on God's Word. They know God's Word. They've been called by God to teach God's Word, and therefore they're the ones who are going to carry out step two. It takes time. It's it's orderly. They discuss it. They listen. They debate. People speak, but they don't cave to the impulses of the hurt group. Let me selectively look at a few verses with you there. Back to verse two. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them... So we're in Antioch, where this emerged, and this group has taught this falsehood. Paul and Barnabas, because they know truth, they say, no way. That's not going to happen. So they take them on. But it's not resolved. So the next step is that Paul and Barnabas are appointed to go up to Jerusalem. To who? To the apostles and the elders about this issue. Barnabas and Paul submit themselves to the local leadership of the church in Antioch to then go up to the local leadership in the Jerusalem church to, to deal with this issue. And so off they head. Look at verses 6 and 7. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. The apostles and the elders considered the matter. Verse 7, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them so the apostles and the elders are, are, are discussing this issue and then the apostle peter steps up and he talks and i'm not going to read to you what he says but he speaks into it look at verse 12 again all the assembly fell silent and they listened to barnabas and paul as they related what signs and wonders god had done through them among the gentiles So Paul and Barnabas then have their turn to speak to the group as well, and they retell their experiences with the gospel on their first missionary journey. Look at verses 13 and 15. After they finished speaking, James, that's the half-brother of Jesus who didn't believe in Jesus until the death, burial, and resurrection of his half-brother. He's a lead elder in the Jerusalem church. After they finished speaking, James replied. Look at verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. What James is saying there is the word of God is what we need to filter this issue through. And now that we have Here's what the Word of God says. The Word of God is the one that filters truth for my life. Not my life filters the Word of God to suit me. So we've looked at uh, at the problem being identified, step one. We've looked at the shepherd leaders discussing and debating and filtering this issue through the Word of God. That's step two. Look at step three, verses uh, 22, all the way through to the end, really. But I only have verse 29 in there in the sermon notes for you. The shepherd leaders present a practical way forward. A practical way forward. They take God's Word and they apply it. Very, very quickly, look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose some men from among them and send them to Antioch with Saul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So we've got to write a letter here and we've got to send it out to the churches. We've got to lay out our decision. Because we have spoken, and this is good. And so they pick the right people to represent them and to distribute this letter. Then in verses uh, 23 and, and all the way down to 29, we actually have the letter. And it's extremely practical, but several things are highlighted. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard, we listened, we heard the issue. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we give them no instructions, it has seemed good to us. We heard, we listened, we deliberated upon it, and now it seems good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. We have also sent Judas and Silas, uh, who will also tell you these same things by word of mouth. Not just a letter, but actually in person. For it has seemed good to who? To the Holy Spirit. It doesn't seem just good to us. This is right in keeping with God. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden and these requirements. And then verses twenty, verse 29 essentially lays out some very practical applications for the churches concerning the shepherd leader's deliberation on the issue. There's lots there. This is a key chapter. All I'm wanting you to see for the purposes of the movement maturing is that there's a pattern laid out for us here. This first church council is is a template that all church councils have followed since. Identify the problem. The right people deliberate upon the problem. And then they present practical applications for that for the community of faith. So after all that, Jonathan, what is it you're saying? Wrap this up for us. Well, if you've joined the movement, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're part of his choice movement. And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to help you join the movement. And I know if you're watching online that other pastors would like you to reach out to them. Just reach out. But if you've joined the movement, here's all I want you to do. I told you up front, it's it's very, very basic. I want you to study God's Word personally and submissively in order to mature. I like to do a little bit of handiwork around the house. I'm a bit of a DIY guy. I'm not very good, but I like it. And over the summer, one of the things I've really enjoyed doing is rolling up my sleeves, digging a few holes, and getting muddy and wet with the sprinkler system. Now, you've got to understand that where I come from, we have a sprinkler system that's already installed, and it never goes off from the heavens. I'm not that used to the the in-the-ground version of it, but I love it. I personally enjoy just figuring it out, and and, and I devote a lot of time to it. I've matured substantially in my understanding of Texan sprinkler systems. saves me a lot of money as well, I think, because problems do crop up. They're quite complicated little systems, you know. There's zones, and they're all connected, and it's all based on water pressure, and I hated physics in school. And the worst is that they're all activated by electric wiring that's color-coded, and I'm colorblind. You can see how messy this personal joy of mine DIY project can quickly become. And so there has come points when I have to what? Call in the expert. Get the guy who knows the stuff better than I could ever know it and sit under him. So I enjoy it personally, but I also enjoy it somewhat submissively. We have to study God's Word personally. Eat, feast at God's Word for yourself. Read it, study it. Make sure that you're devoted to it. Make sure that you study it not according to the post-truth way. Not according to the, you know, I wanted to say what I wanted to mean because it suits what I want. Don't put words on God's mouth. You will stand before him because of that. Let him speak. Let him do the rebuking and the correcting bit, right? The bits we don't like. But when you do so, make sure that you study God's word also submissively. You are part of a fantastic church, trust me. I know churches. You've got a great team of shepherd leaders whose responsibility before God is to guard the truth and feed the flock. Let them. And, and, and when you think that they're, they're going off in the wrong direction, then appropriately approach them. But don't subvert them. That's not what the movement has done for 2,000 years. Friends, there are all sorts of movements these days. Some are harmless. Uh, I was driving down here and I saw a big billboard that said, eat more chicken. All right, that's Chick-fil-A's movement. It's, it's a harmless movement unless you're a chicken. But there's a lot of crazy movements out there who are not rooted in the Word of God. So be careful. You're a part of the greatest movement that has ever walked the face of planet or earth because it's been designed by God, the church. God's been faithful for 40 years. He wants to be faithful for another 40 years. He will if we meet with him. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because it is alive and well. And as the book of Hebrews says, it's sharp it cuts right through to the bone. Lord, I pray that as we go into our week and as we finish off 2020 and head into 2021, that we will be for another 40 years a people who are rooted in your word and subject to your great local church leaders. Amen.